Hey, it's Mark. As one well-known media analyst commented recently, the death of TV advertising is nigh. We won't use this forum to debate that. Suffice it to say, as he did, linear TV's capacity to satisfy reach objectives in a cost-effective manner relative to alternatives faces significant risk. Indeed, we've seen a proliferation of appropriate media options for major pharma brands. Take streaming media, for example. For years, healthcare marketers have been tantalized by the possibility of collaborating with the streaming world's top platforms, but frustrated by the lack of ad-supported tiers. They're now able to take advantage of opportunities presenting themselves on the likes of Netflix and Disney+. These new ventures present challenges and opportunities on both sides of the media equation. Lesha Bushek has an interview with Eric Lloyd, head of Industry for Health at streaming network Roku, to talk through both the enthusiasm, but also how health brands can safely take advantage of these new offerings. And Lesha also returns with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. Today I'll give a rundown of a new bill introduced in Congress that would aim to increase at-home health care to help stabilize Medicare's financing problem. And Jack, we've got an interesting study on tap for this week's healthcare social media segment, yes? Yeah, Mark, we'll be delving into a recent report showing that the top drug makers continue to bypass opportunities to connect with their audience via social media at a local level, even while use on these platforms is almost doubled. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hi there, my name is Lesha Bouchak, and I'm a senior reporter at MMM. I'm super excited to be part of today's podcast interview with Roku. Here with me today is Eric Lloyd, head of industry pharma, health, and wellness at Roku. And we're going to chat about pharma marketing in TV streaming and how brands can take advantage of the emerging health and wellness opportunities on the channel and reach consumers through connected TV. Hi, Eric. Great to have you here. Lasha, thanks so much for having me. Very excited to talk to you as well. So we've heard a lot about connected TV in the last couple of years uh, in pharma marketing. And we're also starting to see more and more of the 50 year and older audience um, actually driving the adoption of CTV, showing similar behaviors to younger audiences. When we look at cord cutting, what does that mean? And what are we seeing when it comes to this shift? Sure. So cord cutting, as defined by itself, is really just the, the nature of when a consumer or streamer does not have a cable broadcast subscription. So they solely rely on connected television apps. So a device like Roku, Roku TV, Apple TV, Amazon Fire to access all of their media content. And so they're not going to a traditional cable subscriber to then you know, sign up for a year-long service, which has uh, several different channels, but rather their own curated version of that is, is within connected television. And we definitely are seeing, especially over the past like two years, really coming out of the pandemic, that uh, what first was driven by younger audiences is now being driven by the 50-plus the audiences. And we're actually finding that they are starting to really mirror the behaviors that we saw with some of the, the younger audiences who first adopted streaming, meaning they're downloading more apps. They are spending more time in streaming than on linear. Uh, in fact, 50... 5% of those who are 50 and over are actually cord cutters themselves. And amongst the other 45% that are not, they're spending the majority of their time streaming versus in linear. So it's, it's one of those things where I think the streamer and the consumer want to take 
control of what apps and services that they pay for, um, as they've done with music in the past, uh, in order to to really curate an entertainment uh, product that is right for them versus versus something that they maybe didn't want to pay for multiple channels uh, across the board. Definitely. And, you know, the pharma industry has definitely started to adopt, um, you know, diving into CTV more, but uh, we know that they've been a bit slow to, to fully dive into it. Can you provide some context around that? I mean, to what extent has the pharma industry, I guess, uh, gotten into it? And um, to what extent is it they're still a bit slow to pick it up? Sure. I, I think the past year we have seen accelerated adoption. If we were having this conversation 12 months ago, I think we would say that there's a fair amount to, to still to still go. But I, I do think over the last 12 months, there have been concerted efforts and strides to invest more in streaming just based on consumer behavior alone. Uh, if I think about where we still have opportunity, uh, I think it, it's in realizing the tremendous reach and scale that ha- that now exists within streaming. Um, and it's gotten to the point now as broadcast continues to, to shift downwards in terms of viewability of viewership, sorry, uh, we're, we're seeing that streaming is picking up that growth. And so we're, we're able to show that streaming for, for any pharma brand and pharma client can really be what they want it to be. So if they want it to be a mass reach vehicle where you're reaching a certain demographic, uh, there is tremendous scale there. But if you want it to be a little bit more addressable, uh, such as digital, social, programmatic, you have that capability as well. And we work with third-party audiences such as uh, CrossX, uh, Cubia, and Swoop. And the, the great thing about those is that those are audiences that were born out of digital and programmatic investment. And now as we apply those audiences into streaming, we're starting to see scale that rivals some of the largest tentpole events in broadcasts, March Madness, Grammys, Oscars, um, and doing that on a basically a daily and weekly basis, being able to get that level of scale with, with a much more targeted audience. And so I think understanding that this is an, there's an addressability play within connected television and the scale and reach, assuming you buy at the platform level, uh, does provide you with a tremendous ability to actually impact the patient journey and be able to drive script lift with your with your brands. Absolutely. And um, kind of going into the script lift idea, um, what would you say pharma and healthcare brands um, need to start sort of implementing or putting into to place or tailoring their approach to better, better grasp the channel for script lift? Yeah, and I, I don't want to put a blanket statement on this just because I want to have give respect to each farmer brand's way of measurement because everybody's going to measure a little bit differently. Uh, however, where we've seen a, a lot of demand is on the side of getting earlier access to data to show measurement lift across any channel that they're operating in. And so we've seen clients uh, work with a, a CrossX uh, who is able to to show uh, script lift on different types of media in, in a much more shorter format than maybe the traditional mixed media modeling uh, that might happen on a, on a yearly basis. And so I think it, it's uh, working with our clients to really start identifying what are some of those leading indicators, such as audience quality, uh, such as video completion rates, uh, to be able to start determining what can we control on our side uh, to be able to drive those those best performance metrics for them. And can you highlight any new uh, initiatives or features that Roku has implemented recently that can be helpful for brands, um, you know, some of the opportunities that, that Roku provides? 
Yeah, I think what's most unique about us and what we are really driving in market, because there's a lot of confusion around how to buy connected TV, streaming television in market in the marketplace, because there's so many different ways to access it. Our secret sauce is really that we sit up here at the platform level, like 50% of all broadband homes have a Roku device in it. We account for 50% of all impressions within CTV. And within that, we're basically the gateway window into all of streaming. So as people are choosing what apps they want to use to access streaming content, whether it's Netflix, Disney Plus, Peacock, the Roku channel, Hulu, they download it within the Roku app. So we have the ability to view that entire streaming streaming journey. And what ends up happening in the marketplace is you, you see a lot of articles in, in the trades around how fragmented streaming is. It's like, oh, it's just as fragmented as linear was. And and that's true from a content perspective. I mean, we have over 100 apps that are ad-supported that people use on a daily basis. And we know that streamers churn through apps on a pretty quick basis. They they share passwords. They they download an app for a month and then switch to another app. Um, And they're basically focusing on what content that they want at the time. And, you know, they have five plus apps at any given time. And all that can be really confusing and and fragmented. But the way that you can buy streaming doesn't have to be fragmented. It actually should be less fragmented than social media. It should be less fragmented than broadcast because at the platform level, uh, we actually use what we call a device ID attached to each one of our devices to, to be able to actually control advertising reach and frequency to provide better outcomes for our advertisers as well as a better ad experience for our streamers so that they're not seeing the same thing over and over again. And I think that's that's the biggest area of opportunity that we see in terms of educating the marketplaces. If you want to eliminate waste and increase efficiency, which is definitely needed in this type of, of economic environment, and as pharma brands don't want to overload the same patients with the same ads over and over again, using a platform like Roku to actually drive the entirety of your streaming television by is something that can help you achieve those things. And so that's something that we're extremely excited about as pharma starts to really lean into streaming. Uh, focusing on the platform versus just the individual apps. And when we talk about um, you know, these advertising opportunities um, in CTV, um, you know, in a previous conversation with you, you had mentioned an example of sort of beyond just the traditional linear TV ad of, you know, a 30 second commercial, um, there's new ideas of ownership of different types of content. I mean, I think one of the examples you threw out was I, this idea of building like a cooking show for an audience of people with diabetes, for example. Can you talk a little bit about the difference um, between some of those opportunities and sort of the expansion of um I guess, uh, advertising opportunities compared to traditional linear TV and, and what some of those examples might look like. Yeah, I would love to. And that's, that's my favorite example. So thank you for, for bringing it up. But the, where, where we're finding opportunity here is above and beyond the media spot. We did, we, we partnered with Lucid to really do some, some great market research on what our consumers wanted to see from farmer brands. And, uh, they understand that there will be pharma advertising within connected television. They're, they're very comfortable with that. Um, what they did want to see more of from pharma brands is more content about healthy living and lifestyle. And you know, Roku, we're an expert in entertainment and content. And you know, cooking has such a big role in a lot of that in terms of lifestyle that there's really a, a nice bridge between healthy living and, and cooking for us. And so we want to basically combine what we know about our streamers and what they want from, from healthcare brands, which is 
more content around healthy living that can help support their their disease state. And we know that if we do that, we'll actually drive a, an increased level of trust between those pharma rants and those streamers. And so providing opportunities such as building a cooking show for diabetics and, and cooking plays such an important role in so many different disease states around inflammations. So if you think about arthritis, if you think about migraine, that that's a natural fit for a series for us to partner with a pharma brand on. And the unique thing about this is that as we bring these opportunities into market, uh, we do have the real estate of the platform of, of what we call our home screen, which is the screen where you actually enter in to the different types of apps and services that you might want to watch. So again, your Netflix, your Hulu, your Roku channel. Uh, but it does take a person an average of 11 minutes to actually find what they want to watch. And so if we can help them discover content around healthy living, uh, we can actually bring them into the experience directly from that homepage. And that does a couple of different things is that one, it satisfies that need that our streamers want more healthy living content from farmer brands. But two, it also allows these farmer brands to find some people that might be more subscription-based heavy. So they might only watch Netflix at a, uh, at a premium. They might only watch Disney Plus at a premium. They don't have the ad-supported versions of that. And so it really allows us to find some of the unreachables in addition to delivering on that need for, for more healthy living content from pharma brands. And what do you hope to see moving forward in the next year as pharma increasingly moves into this space? I mean, what are some of the things you're hoping to sort of take hold in the next year? Yes, I mean, I think the bringing, I, I like to call it around like right-sizing the investment to the opportunity. I, I think we know now like Google has come out with their CTV study that showed that 40% of all U.S. households are just not reachable on linear. That's a fair amount. And as we still see the distribution of, of spend, linear versus streaming, and this isn't going to be every farmer brand, but if you look at the overall dollars, there's still, there's still some room to go. And I think that's always the first step is getting brands comfortable with the streaming experience in and of itself, is how do we right-size those investments to ensure that you're actually reaching those audiences, increasing your unduplicated reach against your linear buys, because we are seeing... In, in our own data, given that we have ACR data around all of the, the Roku televisions we have in market, that those linear buys are providing 1% to 2% unduplication across nine different channels, whereas the streaming buy on Roku is actually showing 92% unduplication. So 92% of people being reached in farmer campaigns on Roku are not being reached on linear. And so getting that opportunity to line up, it shows that you can actually shift money out of linear without sacrificing cumulative reach into streaming that's going to continue to show unduplicated reach. And that doesn't matter if you're targeting the 50 plus audience or you know, the 25 plus audience or a third party targeting audience. There's just a lot of incrementality opportunity, which ultimately is going to get you there. On top of that, we worked with, again, Lucid, they're our, our go-to for our study partners and, and looked at what was the awareness of the major pharma brands that advertise on linear. So the top five disease states and the top four to six brands within each of those in terms of advertising on, on TV. In order for you to actually qualify to answer the survey, you had to opt in that you were somebody who either one, suffered from the condition, or two, were a caretaker for someone that suffered from the condition. And we asked aided awareness questions, like, have you heard of such and such brand? And ask them a yes or no. And we then divided that data up between cord cutters and linear TV viewers. And amongst the cord cutters, there was 35% less awareness of those brands than the linear TV viewers. 
So if you combine all those things together, what do I want to see in the next one to two years as well? I want to see that awareness go from negative 35% to equal with linear. And I want to see the unduplication that we're seeing in streaming continue to increase with uh, maximizing reach and, and I guess efficiency across those streaming buys. Well, thank you, Eric. This discussion really points to this greater shift and, and all these opportunities that you've mentioned that will be underway in the next few years. And we're definitely excited to keep an eye out on how pharma takes advantage of it in, in, in the channel. Eric Lloyd, Head of Industry Pharma, Health and Wellness at Roku. Thanks, Eric, so much. Thank you for having me. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Medicare has a funding problem, also known as Medicare insolvency. The amount of assets through which Part A benefits are paid is expected to run out by 2031. The Department of Health and Human Services has urged Congress to act on the issue to prevent any long-term funding shortfalls. Now there's a bipartisan push to use at-home care expansion as part of the solution. Last week, two lawmakers, Representatives Adrian Smith and Debbie Dingell, proposed a new bill called the Expanding Care in the Home Act, which would boost home care services for people with Medicare. Advocates for the bill say it would also help prevent Medicare from running out of money in the next 10 years by reducing hospitalization costs. The bill would essentially shift care away from hospitals and health care facilities into the homes of seniors. It would allow Medicare to cover 12 hours a week of health care services at home, boost primary care house calls, and expand access to home dialysis as well as at-home lab testing. It would also improve support for at-home care workers. At-home care tech companies showed support for the bill, noting that the pandemic unveiled a desire among seniors and caregivers to have the option to stay home. But some remain skeptical that the bill would really lead to significant savings for Medicare. Some experts have argued that boosting at-home health care could possibly cost more rather than save money. Lawmakers will grapple with the implications of the proposal in coming weeks. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So earlier this month, WorldCom released its digital health monitor report that showed most pharmaceutical companies are missing out on chances to connect with HCPs and patients via social media at the local level. The report analyzed the top 25 pharma companies based on reputation and their online presence across nearly a dozen digital channels, including apps, blogs, corporate websites, as well as social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and Twitter, among others. Notably, TikTok isn't used at all, signaling that pharma isn't connecting with younger generations on a platform they use quite often. Meanwhile, 21 of the 25 companies scored lower than 20% for efficient use of Twitter, while only two companies achieved a LinkedIn efficiency score of over 20%. In the top five overall rankings were Sanofi, Novartis, Roche, Bayer, and Pfizer. Compared to the 2021 rankings, only Pfizer remains as Abbott, AbbVie, AstraZeneca, and Novo Nordisk dropped out of the top five. Serge Beckers, the chairman of WorldCom Healthcare, said, quote, while the use of social media continues to increase, pharma firms continue to miss out on local engagement. App use has increased, but visual platforms like YouTube and TikTok and mainstream social media platforms like Facebook remain underutilized at a local level. Specifically, Becker said that these organizations have missed out on conveying at a local level how they can satisfy heightened consumer expectations around DEI and ESG. And I know we were talking on offline, Lesha, uh, before we started recording, but really the upshot of this is 
why? <laughs> right. That's what I, that was my main question. You know, we, we've obviously heard in recent years that TikTok is the new, you know, top social media platform surpassing even Facebook and Twitter in terms of usage and growth. Um, and we've heard a lot about how uh, pharma brands would like to, you know, take advantage of that, but it's unclear why there's been a hesitation for brands to kind of jump on and, and create profiles for themselves. And I know Mark mentioned there's been this concern about brand safety, but Mark, maybe you have uh, more of an explanation as to the why behind this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't have, um, and you know, I, I haven't pointedly posed the question. Uh, I probably should, but I think Brand safety, as you said, Lesha, has, has a lot to do with it when it comes to TikTok. Um, I'll just say like the way we think about pharma's participation in social media is, um, you know, the bifurcation between paid and organic. And I know on, a, on the paid side, uh, a couple of pharma brands have done TikTok activations. Uh, one that I happened to re- report it on a couple of years ago was by the Adakveo brand, uh, the, which is Novartis' sickle cell brand. Uh, they launched a TikTok dance challenge featuring the late entertainer and advocate Stephen Twitch Boss um, and uh, artist producer CP Dub as part of their Do You campaign. And just to show you the, the power of that channel, that effort reached uh, more than 44 million users uh, with more than 300 user-generated videos doing uh, this Do You Challenge dance, uh, and they got uh, a lot of comments, 95% of which showed a highly positive sentiment. And I had interviewed the brand manager there, and and they were very pleased with the effort. But again, that was from a paid perspective. Um, From an organic perspective, I think there's, there's a lot of hesitation. You know, we can... Uh, who have reported, you know, for weeks now on, on the level of healthcare misinformation that's rampant on that channel probably has them, you know, a few of them quaking in their boots a little bit, you know, can you imagine organic content kind of being adjacent to that and they have no control over that. So that would be, you know, just kind of my quick take on, on why there's a lot of hesitation with that particular channel. But a lot of pharma's participation is disease state based, uh, you know, with the sickle cell challenge, you know, that, that happened to be, there was a good overlap there. So going forward, um, I would expect to see it happen kind of in that one off, you know, a brand here, a brand there type of a type of an effort. That's still amazing though, that the engagement numbers were that high. You said you reported on this a couple of years ago, and now we're at a point where TikTok has only grown in terms of its cultural cachet and popularity, certainly among younger generations, I can say that as somebody who's under 30, but it was interesting too, the fact that like the only two that I can really name off the top of my head are AbbVie and Angin that have their social accounts and they post maybe once a week or something, nothing crazy. They don't have, I think Amgen might have four digits in terms of followers, but I know AbbVie doesn't. Um, But it's just like, you know, Twitter is obviously on fire now. I think a lot of brands are doing a little bit of reassessing in terms of what their presence is going to be there. And then you have this behemoth in TikTok and people really aren't gravitating towards in the same way as this report says that they should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, using it for ESG um, and DE&I just seems like uh, quite a, a safe, you know, use of, of the platform for sure. Uh, they don't have to talk about you know any uh, kind of brand specific mentions where they would get into like that fair balance type thing. So from that perspective, I agree with, with the report's conclusions and and you know notwithstanding uh, Worldcom's. Uh, you know, findings here, certainly uh, they, 
the, the findings speak for themselves. The other point I would just kind of mention, uh, which is one that a lot of people out there know and recall, is how a lot of pharma brands paused their uh, paid campaigns um, on Facebook and Instagram in support of the Stop Hate for Profit campaign a couple of years ago, and then again, uh, pausing a lot of their uh, Twitter campaigns uh, after the Elon Musk takeover, uh, which kind of is a good reminder of how important brand safety is, is to them as it is to, to many brands. Uh, but, you know, f- from a corporate perspective, um, uh, I'm not an attorney, but I, I wouldn't see a lot of danger, you know, in using TikTok for one, and having a presence uh, from, from that perspective. I have a minor in law from college. I'm certainly not going to offer any legal advice. Pre-med, pre-law, same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I did want to say just before we uh, get out of here that, you know, this is a special episode because it's our first one that we've done since the Neil Awards last week. And we are in the presence of a two-time back-to-back Neil Awards winner in Mark. So I want to give a round of applause Congratulations, Mark. Very well-deserved. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank Very you. well deserved. And the other member of our team, Sean yes, Ailing, for um, Art Direction for our cover for the June issue last year. Um, certainly check that out on our website. We have the honors there. But yeah, very well deserved. Three Thank P, you. Three P in the works. <laughs> I, I won't go so far as to uh, make any Brady-esque uh, prediction, but uh, <laughs> suffice it to say, it's, it's very humbling. Uh, and uh, I'm very grateful to the uh, to the Neil community, to Neil, the Neil judges for that. Um, really appreciate the, the, uh, the nod. Uh, and to my uh, Haymarket team, can't do it without you guys. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs> <laughs>